The Guardian. A lot happened during 2020. Most of it focused on the very small, a tiny virus that has a devastating impact on our lives. But there was also plenty happening at the opposite end of the scale, in the vastness which is space. From the discovery of phosphine on Venus, a potential sign of life, to NASA touching down on an asteroid. But the cosmos doesn't just offer scientific interest. It inspires art and music, influences our traditions and rituals, and gives us a way to imagine other worlds, whether it's distant planets that may be harbouring life, or what our own could look like in thousands of years. That escapism and being able to put our planet and all its challenges into perspective is becoming increasingly difficult. City lights may brighten our streets during the dark winter nights, but their glare also obscures the wonder of the Milky Way above. In episode one of this two-part exploration into humanity's relationship with the cosmos, I was joined by Joe Marchant, author of the book The Human Cosmos, and Martin Rees, Astronomer Royale. We discussed how the cosmos has influenced us over the course of history, from cave art to astrological predictions of the future, and how the impact of artificial light today may be affecting our health and that of other animals. Dung beetles are interesting because they actually sight off the Milky Way when they're trying to get back to their nest. So they're rolling the sort of huge balls of dung. You've probably seen the footage. And they're using the stars and the Milky Way to orient. With increasing light pollution and modern technology allowing us to reach further and further into the cosmos, how may our relationship to the night sky change in the future? It's not just astronomers who care about this, just as it's not just ornithologists who would miss the songbirds in their garden. It's something that uh, matters to all people, and just as it would be sad if young people never had a chance to uh, see a bird's nest, for instance, it would also be equally sad if they never had a chance to see a dark sky. I'm Linda Geddes, a science correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. To explore more of how the stars and planets influence us here on Earth, I was once again joined by Joe Marchant and Martin Rees. Coming out of the Christmas period, I was curious to know from Joe what the role of the cosmos has had on our traditions and beliefs over history. The cycles of the cosmos, I think, have always been what imposed order onto people's lives and always so crucial for survival. So that moment of the winter solstice where the sun is receding, the days are getting darker, life is dying. And then that moment when the, the sun halts its journey and starts to come back has always been so powerful. So we see that in hunter-gatherer communities like the Chumash who lived until recently in California. They're sort of elite priests had the knowledge of predicting when the solstice was going to be. They had this ritual with a quartz crystal on a stick that they used to try and persuade the sun to, to come back. And then you see this really important moment that's kind of made physical in monuments like Newgrange, where um, the sunrise on the winter solstice shines directly into the heart of the tomb and Stonehenge as well that's aligned around the solstices. So people went to huge lengths to make this moment physical, to be able to experience that beam of light, to mark that particular moment. And then as you get sort of more organised religions developing 
initially, like pretty much every culture ends up worshipping beings in the sky. So sometimes you have sort of these gods that encompass the whole sky or the heavens. Um, sometimes it's specific celestial bodies like Jupiter or, or, the, or the sun. And then, of course, you've got the rulers of these civilizations associating themselves, sometimes impersonating these celestial beings and taking that authority for themselves. Um, and in the book, I look particularly at the the birth then of, of Christianity, which is a really interesting moment when humanity is going from sort of many gods in the sky to towards one transcendent god, which was a really fundamental change in our relationship with the universe, where rather than essentially worshipping the, the sky and having these sort of living divine beings in the sky, you've put your your sort of transcendent God at one step remove. And now the, the cosmos is the sort of creation of, of that God. Um, and that's a, a very different kind of, of universe. And it enables that sort of God's eye view of stepping outside the cosmos and looking down on it, that kind of third person view, which interestingly has also been really important in the development of science. So that was a big shift. But at the same time, there are lots of elements of that previous worship of, of celestial bodies, particularly the sun, that have crept into to monotheism. So if you look at Christianity, for example, you've got initially praying towards the east with the rising sun. Um, and then, of course, you've got the festivals through the year. The sort of life cycle of, of Christ itself is kind of modelled on that movement of the sun during the year. So in one sense, we have moved away from worshipping celestial bodies. But in another sense, that symbolism is still very much with us. And once you start looking for solar symbolism within religious texts or buildings or art, you start seeing it everywhere. Take Christianity and the halo of light you often see around a person's head to show their sanctity. And when you think about it, it seems as if references to the cosmos in religion often confer power as well. Certainly, Joe, in your book, you talk about kings, queens and rulers taking their authority from the heavens in a more religious or spiritual sense. But what about the science and mathematics of the cosmos? Do we draw power from that too? It's really interesting this, how our relationship with the cosmos, the sky, has always been completely entwined with, with power and with our political structures on Earth. But as science has changed our understanding of the cosmos, that has seeped through into our politics. So, for example, when Copernicus put the sun at the centre of the solar system, immediately kings in Europe started modelling themselves on the sun with their subjects orbiting around them like planets. But then it was really Newton, when he revolutionised physics, he also helped to revolutionise politics, because with his universal laws of gravitation, he showed that everything in the universe, from particles to planets, has to obey the same physical laws. And that meant that celestial bodies are no longer these divine beings we were talking about that can do whatever they like. They have to obey the same rules as everything else. And people started to, to think into the Enlightenment, the 18th century, well, if that's true for the cosmos, should that not be true for people as well? Shouldn't everyone from commoners to kings have to obey the same rules? And so you get people talking about politics, the increasing role of the English government in being a check on the king, and they're using astronomical mechanical imagery. They're talking about orbits. They're talking about the balance between centrifugal and centripetal forces to keep society stable. And the revolutionaries in, in America and in France as well were 
absolute Newtonians, people like Thomas Paine, using arguments from Newtonian physics to argue for the independence of America, for example. And even after the revolution, when they're forming this new democratic government, the new United States, it's it's these ideas about balance of, of forces and orbits that is informing their ideas about how they're going to structure that government, the sort of the, the system with two houses that balance each other. Um, and they had to come up with a new metaphor, a new sort of image for America, because before this, it was seen as a planet sort of orbiting the central sun of England. But once they were independent, they couldn't just be a you know, a planet drifting along without its sun, they needed an, a new sort of image. So they came up with the idea of a constellation of equal stars, which is why when they needed a flag, you know, they represented the states by stars in, in the sky. It's all from that sort of the, that those Newtonian ideas. So these democracies that we live in now, they're still just as dependent on those cosmological ideas as, as they've ever been. It's interesting you mentioned the US, Joe, because I wanted to talk about modern power and how that's linked to space. In particular, I'm thinking about how spaceflight and getting up into the heavens became a show of power for Russia and the US. And now, of course, we're seeing the same thing with billionaire entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Richard Branson. Martin, tell us about this phenomenon. I think if we think back, rockets were developed, sadly, in the Cold War to uh, carry H-bombs. And that accelerates the technology of bombs and the Apollo program, the moon landing, Neil Armstrong's one small step in 1969, uh, they were motivated by superpower rivalry. And they wouldn't have happened had the rockets not already been developed to carry nuclear weapons. So this technology was accelerated as a byproduct of the Cold War. And if we ask what's happened since then, of course, the Apollo program is still a high point of manned spaceflight because it was fueled by superpower rivalry. Huge amounts were spent on it. And once the Americans had beaten the Russians to the moon, they had no motive to go on. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the moon landings, and I thought it would be 10 years before we had uh, landings on Mars. And that would have been the case had they gone on spending at the same rate. There are two things that I wanted to add. One is that, of course, uh, space has proved hugely beneficial, not just for science, putting telescopes up there, but for everyday life. We depend on space every day for communications, uh, for sat-nav, uh, for weather forecasting, uh, etc. Uh, so space is something that pervades our lives and is becoming cheaper. And of course, as you say, there are now attempts to uh, revive crude space flights, funded not just by governments, but funded by private enterprise. You mentioned Branson, but the two leaders are um, Elon Musk, SpaceX, and Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. And um, SpaceX has already been able to send people up to the space station, and uh, they will be sending paying customers soon. But I think there's a change over the last 50 years, which is that the robots are getting so much better that the practical need for people in space is far less than it was, because uh, if you want to assemble something in, in space, a robotic fabricator could do it. And if you want to explore the surface of Mars, then uh, an AI uh, robot will be able to do as well as a human quite soon and be much cheaper, of course. So my view is that space exploration by humans is going to happen, but it's going to happen as an adventure. And I think it's probably best left to the private sector because the private sector can accept higher risks than uh, 
a Western government can impose on uh, publicly funded civilians. And so what makes NASA's project so expensive is they've got to be risk averse if they're sending humans up. And so I think what's going to happen is that uh, there'll be more humans going up in uh, privately funded spacecraft and lots of accidents and things. But the kind of people who go will be explorers prepared to take the risks. And I hope by the end of the century, there will be a community of people living on Mars and that they will be sort of uh, adventurers uh, rather with the mindset of those who explored uh, the Southern Hemisphere 400 years ago. Joe, we've spoken about religion, power and the future exploration of space. I want to tap into some psychology behind the pull of the cosmos and how it can change the way we see ourselves. I know that astronauts who leave Earth seem to come back with much more emotion towards our planet. This feeling of just how small and precious it is. What's happening there, Joe? do you think? This is a phenomenon called the overview effect. Um, and lots of astronauts, you know, they're these technically trained, hard-headed people. They're going up into space with their scientific technological missions. And they come back talking about the Earth as a as a fragile, precious haven, something that we need to protect, the fact that we all need to treat each other better. They talk about the pettiness of our conflicts on Earth. Um, one particular story I love was um, told by Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut. So on his first spacewalk, he said he stepped out of the space station, completely technically prepared for what he needed to do. And then he saw the Earth and he said he was attacked by raw beauty. It was stupefying, he said. It stops your thought. And I think that's a really beautiful expression of the importance of it not just being machines up there, but but that experience of the cosmos, him actually being able to see the earth and, and realise what it meant, how important it is to see that big picture. And that phenomenon that's called the overview effect, we get sort of similar kind of feelings when we look up at the stars from earth as well. Um, writers through history have talked about feeling lifted up into the stars, a feeling at one with the cosmos. Um, this has a name as well. It's called celestial vaulting. So this confrontation with vastness that really changes our perspective on, on everything. Um, and psychologists call both of those experiences, they define those as the emotion of, of awe, uh, which is basically where we're confronted by something vast that dwarfs us, that's beyond our capacity to comprehend it. And they're doing studies on awe, often by showing people the stars and realizing that this is actually really important for our particularly mental well-being, that people, when they feel awe, when they see the stars, they're more creative, more curious, happier, less stressed even weeks later. And it changes their perspective on life. People say that they feel more connected, they make more ethical decisions, they're more likely to um, make sacrifices to help other people, they care less about money and more about the planet. There's also neuroscience studies showing that after feeling all people sign their names smaller, they estimate their own physical size is smaller, brain activity associated with our sense of self is reduced. So it's all adding up to this idea of or kind of inducing a, a small self where it puts our own sort of personal daily selfish concerns into perspective and our attention is taken away from, from that towards this vast bigger picture. We see ourselves instead as connected to something much bigger and people live differently. They make different decisions as, as a result of that. The psychologists are warning about um, an awe deficit in modern society where we're 
focused on our small screens all the time and we're not confronted by the vast horizons of, of nature and they're warning that this is making us more selfish and, and narcissistic. And so I think this is one reason why we should be really worried about light pollution. You know, we're so disconnected from, from nature today and, and particularly the starry sky. And here we're seeing that there's actually something really important about having that direct sort of physical emotional connection like our, our intellectual scientific understanding of the stars is so important but this is showing us that we we need something else as well we need that direct experience of the stars and with all the you know the crises that we're facing at the moment on this planet i think we if we're going to make the changes that we need to live more peacefully more sustainably then we're, we're also going to need that view of the heavens that that all We've just been talking about light pollution and polluting the Earth, but we're also polluting space at the moment, aren't we, Martin? We are, because we are putting up into space uh, literally thousands of spacecraft, especially in low Earth orbit. And of course, they stay there a long time. And of course, if they collide with each other, then you get lots of debris, uh, which uh, can be dangerous because even a tiny flake of paint going to 18,000 miles an hour can do a lot of damage. And so there's a genuine concern about uh, pollution uh, making the low Earth orbit a dangerous place for future satellites to be. So we've got to be careful about that. So that's one concern. We also, of course, uh, need to worry about the uh, light pollution from the satellites themselves. There are plans to have several thousand very small satellites to help to bring uh, the internet to Africa, for instance. And uh, uh, these will be fairly low-flying satellites, but they will be detectable for some time after dusk and before dawn, and therefore impede some kinds of astronomical measurements. And uh, there's some concern here about whether these spacecraft can be uh, blackened, as it were, so they don't light up the uh, night sky. But if we think further ahead, then not only can we have miniaturized space probes using a technology familiar from our mobile phones, and I think there'll be flotillas of spacecraft that sort of size going all the way out to explore the outer planets in detail, um, but also there'll be giant fabricators in space that will be able to assemble uh, huge solar energy collectors and huge telescope mirrors and things of that kind. I mean, Joe, as someone who wants to protect the view of the night sky for generations to come, what's your opinion of these future advances? If you look back at the history of our relationship with the the cosmos, it's really moved away from seeing ourselves as as part of one sort of biosphere or ecosystem, if you like, seeing that the planet and the cosmos as this sort of fragile system that's essential for our survival to more seeing the earth as a physical resource. And that I think that is responsible for a lot of you know, the environmental problems that we have on the earth, we don't have that sort of holistic view of we need this system to sustain us. It's just the way that our society is regulated, you know, companies are are free to use resources and make money from it. And I do worry that we're extending that same kind of philosophy or outlook to, to space as well. And you see all these satellites that are being sent up, and it's just a kind of territory grab by different companies at the moment, there is no regulation in terms of what is that doing to our experience of the sky? So, you know, it's a problem for astronomers, but I think it's a problem for all of us. And when we do start exploring other planets, uh, again, I just really hope that we'll have a kind of more 
wiser approach um, to how we treat those planets and that we're not just treating them as physical resources that, that we can make a profit from. Martin, your recent book on the future prospects for humanity looks further ahead to the deep future. Where do you think humanity's relationship with space and the heavens could go? Well, I think space exploration and understanding what's out there is going to be a part of the agenda. And I think there will be some people, some adventurers who will perhaps uh, uh, go as far as Mars and perhaps uh, settle there. But I don't think there'll ever be mass emigration to Mars. I think uh, the more people explore into space, uh, they realize just how special our Earth is. But if we look still further ahead, then one of the most exciting things in astronomy uh, is the realization that uh, other stars have planets orbiting around them. And this is really a a mind-blowing expansion in our concept of the complexity of nature, because now we know that in our Milky Way, there are probably many millions, even billions of planets like the young Earth. And of course, the big question then is, will life have emerged on these other Earths as it did here? Or are we very special? Are those other Earths awaiting our arrival, as it were? I think we will be able to have a clearer answer to that question within 10 or 20 years, because we'll be able to observe with the next generation of telescopes with enough sensitivity to pick out the light from an Earth-like planet in orbit around them. And by studying that light, we can perhaps see if there's oxygen there, if there's chlorophyll there, and things like that. So perhaps get some feel for if there's vegetation on any other planet. And Joe, how about you? Where do you think our future relationship with space could go? What I would really love to see is actually a greater understanding of human consciousness. I think that's the big part of the picture that we're missing in our understanding of reality and our understanding of the cosmos. So through most of human history, the story that I'm telling in the human cosmos is that initially there was a very holistic view of the cosmos. Our experience of our our environment, that was reality. And over time, you know, we've built this wonderful knowledge of science by separating ourselves out, by focusing on physical reality, objective measurements, and that's been really powerful. But what's kind of lagging behind really is that understanding of an emphasis on the first person experience, you know, does con- what is consciousness? What role does it play in the, in the universe? Has it just arisen by accident through, through evolution? Does it not exist at all, as some um, philosophers and neuroscientists argue? Is consciousness a fundamental part of the fabric of physical reality, as panpsychists would argue, which is actually you know, a point of view that's becoming more popular nowadays? So I think that is the big thing that, for me, would be so fascinating to understand more about and would really help us to understand the, the entire cosmos, if you like, um, and not just the physical aspect of it. A huge thanks to Joe Marchant and Martin Rees for joining me. Links to their books, The Human Cosmos and On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, are available on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. We'll be back next week. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.